Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hey there, listener. Thanks for tuning in. We're gonna whine about some women from history you probably don't know, but that's okay. You'll meet them in our show. That was beautiful. Cheers, it's time for Whining About Herstory with BFFs. Kelly and Emily will whine about some badass lasses that were left out of your history classes. And though that's such a crime, it's okay. We've got plenty of time to whine, so fill your glass and strap on in. The show's about to begin. It's Whining About Her Story. That was beautiful. <laughs> I feel bad because I interrupted. I didn't know when you were going to no, end. It was, that was wonderful. Yeah, no. There are two verses. Of course. I couldn't stop. I've been working on that for two weeks. I actually thought last week was my intro. So I was all like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then you're like, oh, it's my intro. I was like, oh, my God. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I. Uh, that was beautiful. I really liked that. I, there you go. We have a theme song now, guys. I uh, it, I wish I could play the ukulele because that's what I imagine. Yep. Like, that's a ukulele yep. song. So anyone who can play the ukulele. Get in contact with us. Take that tune, do the ukulele, and then I'll sing over it. And we'll both sing over it. That can be our new intro. Oh my god! And so, of course, I started like toying around with ideas for some of my other favorite history podcasts. And I'm like, maybe they need a theme song too. (laughs) New new side business. Yeah, theme songwriting. Ukulele inspired theme songs for history podcasts minus the ukulele. Yeah, (laughs) we have to subcontract out the ukulele. Yes. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Whining About Herstory. We're going to talk about some ladies from history that you probably haven't heard of, and we're going to drink a whole ton of wine to cope with the fact that we've never heard of them. Right. So. It um, numbs the pain. It numbs the pain. Oh, God. Everything's at least a little better if I have wine. Yes. That's 10,000%. The world may be crumbling around us. But at least I have wine. (laughs) And Emily. Yeah, I love you. Oh, I love you too. All right. Well, do you have a say their name today? My person is going to end up being my say their name. So. Okay. Woo. Yeah. Except not woo. Anti-woo. Something notable happened with Kelly's person today uh, that she will definitely get to. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm real sad. I will just introduce our wine then. Please so do. I like I'm, this one. I'm very excited about this one. So it is called Catu. C-A-T-T-O-O. So like mm-hmm. cat and tattoo. Yeah. And then you it, get it? It? Looks like, it looks like a cat tattoo on the bottle. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very like cute. this. It, it, uh, it almost looks like a, like a tribal inspired illustration of a cat. Check out our Wine Wednesday to see it. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's Pluggy, stunning. Plug, plug, plug. We're taking advantage of the cloudy day slash week slash month. When has the sun ever been in the sky to take nice, beautiful photos? Because cla- overcast weather is better for it photography. Is. I almost photography. said I almost said photography taking <laughs> photography. I wish you would because I was like I, I got mixed up between photo taking and photography, and that turned into photography. <laughs> It's beautiful. I'm just going to read the back of this bottle. All right. So this is a uh, 2018 California Cabernet Sauvignon, which I'm like starting to really get into. Like after doing this podcast, I'm realizing, yeah, I like Cab Sauvs. They're delicious. So this says, the fearless felines of Cat 2 are inspired by my love of cats and appreciation of tattoos. Love this lady. 
A cat tattoo is symbolic of the person's independence and self-sufficient ways. Thanks to the support of angels, the cats are on the prowl at NakedWines.com. Because this is from my Naked Wines box. Signed, Sharon Weeks. Sharon, I also love tattoos. I also love cats. And so I'm totally, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And I'm cuddling it until it scratches me in the face. So it's like, <laughs> no! You know, th- that's kind of the funny thing. We associate people who have a lot of dogs with being like, oh, that's so great. You love animals. But if you have a lot of cats, it's like, you're crazy. I'm like, dogs are super dependent. Cats, like, they don't care if you live or die. <laughs> if a cat loves you, that's a true mark of amazingness. It is. So what are we cheersing to today? I don't know. The end of the week. The end of the week. This has been kind of a rough week for both of us. Uh, so cheers to the end of the week. Also, we did something cool. We were guests on another podcast. And of course, we will share that when it releases because yep. I actually don't know when it is releasing, but it's an awesome two-parter episode that you should def go listen to. Oh my God. It was so much fun. We'll, we'll go into more detail, but that was literally the highlight of my week and I'm thrilled. It was. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I like this. It's a little more mellow than I thought it would be. I thought it would have, like, like the bite is there, it's very, but it's, very like, dry. under a layer. Is, I mean, yeah. Kavsovs are usually very dry. Um, But it's good. I like mm. it. it I do, too. want to go sit in front of the fire. It does, doesn't it? Like, this kind of, it's weird. As much as Moscato's taste like summer and Riesling's, R- this Reds tastes are, like winter. Yeah, yeah. Particularly Kavsovs, but, like... This style of like dry, mellow red, yeah, just yeah. makes me want winter. Even though I it hate, like, makes hate me want to be in a dimly lit Italian restaurant where I incorrectly pair the red wine with a white sauce, and the waiter gives me a look, but I know that it doesn't matter. It's about what I want. <laughs> it's about my self sufficiency as a cat. <laughs> God damn it! I am ten thousand percent a needy dog, so. Not always. I'm like one of those weird temperamental dogs that's like, love me. And then like a day later is like, fuck you. I so I'm basically a cat. I'm a dog cat. Cat dog. Cat dog. It's okay. Um, my dogs, at least two of my dogs are part cat. And I can say that because my friend was over the other day. My sister had given me a bunch of baby clothes like two years ago. And I, at this point in my life, I'm not having children. Maybe later. Probably not. So they were girl clothes and my friend just had a girl. So I was like, you know, do you want to come through, look through it? Because a lot of it was like ages like one to two. And that's kind of where her daughter is right now. So she was coming to look through it and she's like, oh, do you have a bag or something to like put whatever I'm going to take in? And I'm like, sure. So I went and got a box because that's what I found. And I set it on the floor. And the first thing that happens is Dory gets in the box. And I'm like, you are a cat. Oh, my God. That is it was amazing. So cute. It reminds me of we had a cat years ago, uh, and he would drink out of the toilet if my dad left the seat up. So that was a that was a cat dog. Mine yeah, are dog cat. Well, here's the thing: when he was really little, he was drinking out of the toilet and he fell in, and so my mom hears yes. this like splashing and this like commotion. She's like, "The fuck goes in the bathroom?" And this poor little kitten is just like splashing around, drowning and, oh. in the toilet. I'm like, "What a shitty way to go!" <laughs> no pun intended. And so she saved him, and he he kept drinking out of the toilet because God forbid my dad puts the fuck seat down but he never drowned again that's good he learned yeah he he figured it out that was that was his learning moment that's funny 
Um, which of us are going Me. first today? You're going first. You intro. Awesome. First. So I'm excited to learn about your lady slash I say too. their name today. I am too. Well, I already know about her. I'm excited to share her with you. There's something gross in my I, I love the idea that you're like, yeah, I just have these notes. Uh, I don't know how they got here. I think I got really drunk right, they or just something. just showed up. Uh, so I'm also uh, really I, excited I, to learn I, what I happened. Wrote, I wrote this <laughs> after our last episode when I was really drunk. Oh, no, my God. That was so much fun. And then I will never listen to that episode. I'm embarrassed cool. about both sections of it here's the thing quick little plug so so kelly got pretty drunk in our last episode and then after that we record our first patreon bonus episode uh so that is up on patreon and you can get access to it and all the other cool content for as little as one dollar a month what that's insane yes i know it is but so we went from that into a second episode so we both get pretty fucking drunk because i if we really like i really liked the wine that we had last week it's funny we usually agree on wine and there have been some instances where you don't like a wine that i'm really into i was not super yeah. into that wine i there was something I about it. it but this um this might cause me some trouble this is a good sipping this wine, is a though. Good sipping wine. you don't throw this back see whereas the, the other one i was like yeah i got this like i yeah but yeah so anyway you can join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash whiningabouthistory. special things twice a month. Yep. So we are also going to start uh, recording. We're going to add the V to our A. Yeah. <laughs> and those episodes. No, no, the A to, the a to our. No, no the V to no. our A. You got it right. Okay. Um, <laughs> and hopefully those episodes will be going up slightly earlier than the, act, the audio episode. So you'll actually get like pre-content. Yes. Yes. Because we love you. We do, patrons. We love you so much. All right. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Woo! I'm going to not die. I'm on the wine train and I'm ready to go. Woo! Okay. So I'm covering Florence Howe. I'm trying to think of a funny joke little more with don't, the word how no, and I it. can't. <laughs> like, how do you do? Or how? I don't know. So, Florence. Tell us. No. Tell us how, how she's she doing. Oh, <laughs> Tell well, us how she lives. Let's lived. not go with That's that better. <laughs> um... So, Florence was born in Brooklyn, New York on March 17th, 1929. So, one day after me, but many, many years before. Are you calling her old, Kelly? Yes. Okay. She was 92. <laughs> when Anyways. she was born? No. Yeah. <laughs> when she, she was born 92. No. She had that weird Benjamin Buttons thing going um, on. So, Florence was the daughter of a taxi driver, Samuel, and a bookkeeper named Francis. So, those were her parents. And she grew up learning and l- she grew up loving to learn, learning to love. Aren't we all just <laughs> learning to love, you right. guys? Um, she grew up with a combination of growing up with her parents and her uh, maternal grandparents who were from Russia, actually. Um, so her grandma, or as she called her, Baba Sarah, um, yep, um, cared for her. She... Like, growing up, first she was a baby that had colic, so, you know, very crabby baby, unfortunately. God, the worst baby um, thing. And then when she was three, she got a really bad pneumonia, and to the point where the doctors and her own mother thought she was probably going to die, but her grandmother was like, okay, fine, if you think she's going to die, it doesn't matter, I'm going to sit here and take care of her. So, she, you know, the grandmother right. nursed her back. And then went and flipped off the doctors yeah, right, and was exactly. like, never doubt Russian grandma. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then a few months after, her brother was born. So obviously the mom was dealing with um, her brother's birth. So she continued kind of growing up with her grandma. 
um, who taught her how to knit and crochet and embroider and like kind of all that stuff. Um, and then he, she also taught her how to play card games because, you know, you need oh, something fun yeah. in there with all that crocheting. I'm like having all the warm fuzzies because I remember I trying to play checkers with my grandma and like her doing her cross stitch and like the things she tried to teach me, like That's how funny. to fold a blanket and... Of course, I never really stuck with any of it. Otherwise, I'd be a way cooler person right. nowadays. But Well, the other thing she learned from her grandma and her grandpa was uh, Yiddish because that's all her grandmother spoke. Oh, okay. She learned it growing up. She learned, you know, so coinciding, she was bilingual because she grew up learning English and Yiddish just because of how her family worked, basically. Um, unfortunately, her grandma died suddenly in an accident when she was seven and so she, you know, she went on to deal with that loss. After her grandmother died, her grandfather, Max, came to live with them, you know, so he wasn't alone. And the reason he came to live with them instead of his other children was because they had a kosher house and the other siblings didn't keep kosher houses. Okay. So the grandpa was like, nope, coming to live with you. And so her grandpa, Max, would go on to continue teaching her Yiddish and would actually teach her Hebrew as well because that's just how he was like he was a very like that was his culture and he was very like no I'm gonna teach you this like you know which I think is actually great she would go on to like you know ask him what different Hebrew words would be and he would tell her that he she needed to read more quickly like instead of just telling her what the words meant he was like no you just you need to keep learning basically okay which I I think is great with something like that you know accumulating knowledge is never a bad thing. No. Even if you never really use it, it's it's something, it's a skill you have. It's something you know. It's something right. you understand. Exactly. So, like, that's amazing. Right. So, three years after he came to live with them and started teaching them, teaching her Hebrew and stuff, he became ill. And five days after he became ill, he died. She oh, was, my She God. was only 10 at this time. That's so quick. Right. So, unfortunately, she within three years of each other, she lost, you know, both grandparents but she from both of them she had gained that love of learning during all of this her parents who had kind of glossed over they had originally planned to make their fortune selling household goods like that was their plan and they had a push cart unfortunately she was born almost exactly nine months after they got married so like you know things didn't go quite according to plan because she she was she was born, and then their push cart burned down. Oh, no. Yep. What? <laughs> like, okay, completely can't... unrelated. Like, I'm imagining, like, those little carts that they have to sell ice cream, where it's like you can almost attach it to the front of a bike. or you. It, it, I assume it, more, it's you like know, a like, grocery cart, but it's yeah. a box. Well, and I was thinking more, you know, like, old school, like, flower carts, where they're, like, bigger carts that have... Okay. That's kind of what I'm... Uh, envisioning because i'm like does something like that really burn down or does it just catch fire like i don't know because i think burning down i'm like it's that reminds me of a building yeah right tiny right so basically they got married and they were planning on you know doing this business together but then the wife got pregnant and had a kid and then their push cart burned down and then the husband's like i don't know how you got pregnant man yeah, I, I don't know how that um, works so sam her father began to support his uh driving taxi to support his family so like they had this big dream and then things kind of just you know man that sucks right like, um yeah I, again i'm like how does that thing just burn up That's- right Awful. so he was off driving taxi and unfortunately that first decade of Florence's life, why she was part living with her grandparents, part living with her parents, was also during the Great Depression. Oh, so that's no. that's the time frame we're in right now. So you know, it was really rough, and 
Unfortunately, her mother was not very happy to be a stay-at-home mom. She had always wanted to be a teacher. Um, however, her father had only allowed her to go like for the first like chunk of school, and then she he was like, "No, you're gonna get married." to a rabbi which she didn't do because she was like fuck you dad i'm like is he uh, a which rabbi is taxi the, the sub note here which i find interesting is even though her dad did come to live with them max the grandfather uh he never attended her wedding because she he was mad at his daughter oh my so, god interesting side note you don't but, get an education you're gonna marry this man and she's like mm. right so like i said she wasn't a, a very happy stay-at-home mom especially you know when her first kid ended up being a colic baby like you know she That's just rough she was not very happy. And then, of course, she had another child when her first child was three. And apparently growing up, this was from Florence's own uh, autobiography that I read. And this is what she said, quote, my mother was fond of saying about her two children. Isn't it a pity that he has all the looks and she has all the brains? So that's kind of where. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Repeat that. So the mother said this, about this is, this her is, children. So this is Florence's mom. Yeah. She was fond of saying about her two children, isn't it a pity that he has all the looks and she has all the brains? Oh, so he's saying she's smart but ugly. Basically. Although I don't think she was. But yes, that's what the mother would say. Oh, damn. Yeah. So that was her like early life. And then after her grandfather's death, so she's about 10, her mom was like, you know what? I'm sick of being a stay-at-home mom. I'm going back to work. And so she went to work in an airplane factory. That unfortunately left Florence home to do all the housework and look after her brother. Um, however, due to where they, they had recently moved and due to where they had moved, it atten- it allowed um, Florence the opportunity to attend junior high school. Okay. And she took that opportunity. She had that yeah. love of learning. So she went and did like, so basically she went and schooled, but then also took care of her brother and her house. Well, like she, she was very like trying to do it all. Unfortunately, the school that she happened to attend was is what was known as a feeder school, which was basically a school that was like really intense and like they basically prepped you to go to really prestigious high schools and colleges. Oh, so it's okay. it was like a it was more like a like a prep school, but yeah. it was very intense. Like they expected like the you know the most from you this wasn't like most of our junior high school experiences or middle school or whatever you call it where man right. if you're not smoking pot in the bathroom or getting into fights you can fly so low under right. the radar exactly. i actually funny middle school stories so i was i was always i wasn't a great student but i was a good kid yep and so i got along with all the teachers i got along with people in school i didn't really have any uh disciplinary issues and so this one time uh i was in seventh grade and i remember i was heading to choir class and i was on my first ever period I was 13 years old and I was getting a drink of water from the fountain and this dude who I've never seen before comes up and blows a raspberry in my face so he does that like like spits in my face and I I stand up and I look at him and I'm just like what and he says how far'd you get and I'm like what does that even mean what is happening like I have no idea what is going on right now and just got really pissed and I kicked him in the shin. Like, I just went like, ah, like nailed him in the shin. He falls against the wall behind him and like goes down. And I just walked away. I love I, you. And this is so out of character for me because I, I yeah. don't want to get in trouble. I don't no, want to cause that's issues. Fantastic. And so I'm sitting in choir before class starts. I'm reading and these girls come up to me and they're like, what's your name? And I'm like, 
why? Like, well, that boy, you kicked his tail on you. And I just ignored them. I was like, I don't First of all, why care. would you? T- that's when you tell. That's when you just pick a fucking rant. This is the beginning of your Alice, Emily. You should yes. have just been like, my name is Alice. Well, I was, you know, I was pretty new to the school at this right. point because I, I moved uh, in the middle of seventh grade. Yeah. So. Lucky you that they had no idea who the right. fuck you that's were. That's why no one knew who I was. They're like, oh, she's just there she's she's a person that's just there right and then the choir teacher comes in and he had actually introduced himself to me on my first day he's like oh and this was a pretty big school it was much larger than I was used to so it was impressive to me that he'd come up and be like oh you're new you're gonna be in my choir class my name is this and blah 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 like he was a really cool teacher he goes hey Emily did you kick a kid in the hallway (laughs) and I put my book down in my lap and I'm like I did. I was getting a drink of water and he spit in my face. I I I I'm shouldn't sorry, have done that. Right? I didn't mean to kick him that hard. I meant to kick him a lot harder. <laughs> I, I meant to kick slightly farther north and significantly harder. Yeah, it, instead of a <laughs> kick, it was going to be more of a like jab of the foot. Right to the ball. And and I'm thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. My parents are going to get a call like this sucks. He goes... Oh, okay, I was just wondering. Uh-huh. Because this I kid, love that teacher. Because this kid was a piece of shit. <laughs> and the teacher probably knew and it. And all the teachers knew it. Right. And so, like, for the rest of the year, I still don't know who this person was. So if you're listening, slide into our DMs, because what the actual fuck... But I would, he would see me in the hall and be like, ooh, guys, watch out, she's going to kick you, like, in a mocking way. Dear but God, I, like, I would have kicked him again. But I was like, you're a bigger person than I am, Emily. How is it, how is it mocking to, like, warn your friends that I'm going to kick them all after I made you go down to the fucking ground? Right? You're <laughs> like, you're just admitting that you got kicked and beat, yeah. beat by a girl. I am four foot eleven, <laughs> sir. <laughs> what does that say oh, about you? But Yeah. So she's at this this feeder school, as they call it. And two years into her being there, an English teacher decided that she should be tutored in math so that she could pass the entrance exam for Hunter College High School. Yes, it was called Hunter College High School. Don't ask me. Which is great. Like, her teacher was like, hey, you're super smart. Like, let me help you, basically. And she she was all for it. However... In the back of her mind, she couldn't forget what her mother had told her when she was younger, which was she was to become a teacher because that's what her mother never got the chance to. Oh, fulfilling your dreams through your children never works out. And honestly, with with the childhood she grew up in, it doesn't surprise me that she was like, okay, my mom wants me to do this. I'm going to do this. You yeah. Know? Um, so at Hunter College, she found she really found her voice, not necessarily in the classroom, but as a student activist. She was inspired by her college's motto, which was Mihi Cure Futuri, which I don't know Latin, so I might have pronounced that wrong, but it means the care of the future is mine, which I really fucking like. Like, I'm sorry, Hunter, you have a real weird name, but I like a motto that is the care of the future is mine. I love that needs to be everywhere. That needs to be the 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 name of like that just that needs to be the worldwide slogan. Emily has drank too much wine. Now with okay. the I guess it's my turn to get yeah. sloppy on an episode. Do it. Because I'm not even through my glass. It's a I'm Saturday. Feeling, I got nothing else I to do. I have not eaten a lot today. Oh, that God, may be it. a problem. 
Because I, I, I don't purposely have any... ate when you were like, I'm coming over at this yep. time. I was like, I'm going to go have some cheese and crackers. Well, I, I should have waited. Cheese didn't and crackers have any and wine in my house. Perfect. I didn't have any wine in my or not wine. <laughs> Shit. No, no your wine wine's here. <laughs> All my wine is here. I didn't have any food in my house because I was waiting for groceries to be delivered. And Jared's having kind of a high anxiety day. So like I got up. I went to the gym, I came home, and instead of showering, I was waiting for groceries, and I, like, did a little snacking, but there's not a lot of food in the house, and then the groceries came, and I showered and got ready and came over, so I'm realizing now mistakes may have been made. (laughs) It's okay, I got nothing else going on. You can stay here as long as you need. And feed me. So... This high school was very demanding, and she didn't earn A's very easily, but she did make a lot of friends. Or no, she did earn A's very easily. Sorry. Probably because that feeder school that she had gone to had been so difficult, She and she had been a B student basically her whole time there. This college slash high school slash whatever it was, she did a lot better at it. Was probably because... You know, it wasn't as demanding and she could really like open up and just be herself. So she earned grades really easily. She made a lot of friends. And what was kind of cool is the group of friends that she formed was interracial, interreligious, and just it was everyone. And it was honestly during that time, it was, you know, because that's like the 1940s. Yeah. So it was probably one of like the first of its kind where it was just Come be yourself. It was very inclusive. Exactly. That's fantastic. In her junior year, she was elected president of the Student Self-Government Association, which I assume is like a class president. That's what I assume. I don't know. It sounds like student government. So I think that's kind of cool. And then that year, she was also elected. That year, the college president and another professor thought she should drop student teaching and prepare herself to become a college professor of English. So they're like, stop student teaching. Like, let's let's get you on this path to become your own professor, basically. Um, And they both. So both the president of the school she was at and another uh, and another teacher wrote um, letters of recommendation for graduate school, which kind of overrid her mother's goals for her because her mother just wanted her to be a teacher. Right. And these other people were like i wonder if it's a high school and a college that's what we're gonna I, go i was with. gonna say wait is she in high school or college right now did i miss something well, <laughs> she is col- she's, going- she's in college high school maybe it's so like, maybe it's both maybe it's like when you can start taking college credits yeah. early even though you're in high school like i had some classes even in college that were joint undergraduate graduate right. classes and the yep. only difference was that the graduate students had to write a longer paper yeah. and i'm like and i, think that's I what feel it like is. i'm getting a little tear yeah, but right? i also don't want to write a longer paper <laughs> so toward the end of her career at hunter college she was awarded entrance into phi beta kappa which a lot of those and i know because there's one for psych which is called psychi um they're very elite organizations. Like they're usually the best, the best in whatever field they have to do with. They're they're not a typical like fraternity sorority type thing. This is an academic. Like they're still called a sorority or a fraternity, but it's academic based. Right. Um. She she got into Phi Beta Kappa, which was in specific for or specific for superlative academic achievement. So she was like top of the top and they were like, we want you. So she started taking her graduate classes to become a college professor and she received her BA in English in 1950 from Hunter College. She then went on to Smith College and earned an MA in English in 1951. So it only took her a year to get her master's. Damn, girl! So then she would work for a few years, and then three years later, she would go on to attend the University of Wisconsin. Oh, hell 
probably yeah. not River Falls, but you know. But it's the Wisconsin system, so she's our uni sister. Right, exactly. Um, so first she would enter as a female teaching assistant, which was pretty rare. Like that was yeah. Um, to to know how rare it was in the in the college high school she went to, she was only one of five women in Hunter College. Like students. Yep. Holy well, shit. it says from Brooklyn, so I'm sure there was maybe more, but like she was like one of the only like Brooklyn's women. Not a small place, though. Like I get Mm-mm. it's a pretty elite school, right? Well, but and still. then she went on to Smith. Smith is still today known as one of the top schools in the area. Yeah, and I mean, I know I went to a public high school, but still, I had a class of like 400 some people, and I would say it was about 50 50 men right? and women. Exactly. You know? So she went on to be, like I said, she was in the University of Wisconsin. At this time, she not only wanted to be a teacher, but she also at this point in her life was like, you know, I want a family. So chasing the, the want for a family, she married a man working on his master's at the University of Chicago. He would he would go on to transfer to Wisconsin and they, you know, they would be together and he would be working on his graduate studies while she was a uh, teaching assistant. Um, However, in the third year of her studying at the University of Wisconsin, he would go on to issue an ultimatum to her um, because he was going back to New York. He was done with his studies and he was going back to New York. So his ultimatum was this. Return to New York with him right then or get a divorce. So they they did they they went oh. on to, yeah so that that was her ultimatum and she was like I I really want to finish schooling like can we like can I finish schooling and then join you um he allowed her to complete her residency requirements but made her leave before writing her dissertation so she never ended up actually getting her degree from the University of Wisconsin I'm hating all the words you're using like allowing and yep. made her like I don't know that sucks. Right. Like, I, I feel like when two people are both pursuing higher academics like that. Right. You think there'd be a sense of camaraderie and like, hey, I understand how important this is to you because my stuff is also very important to right. me. And I understand, I mean, you know, that's how we have Justin to kind of do what you know? we have to do. And there is, you know, yeah. this understanding. But it kind of seems like he's like, I. it's cool that you're smart and you're doing this, but it's, it's interfering with my yep. schedule. Like, it seems like he... And I'm I'm totally editorializing. I'm putting a lot on this dude, Go but it, it feels like he's seeing her pursuits as more of a hobby. Yeah. Well, oh, his probably. are more important because he's the man. He's I mean, the breadwinner. This, this is early. It's late nineties, early late forties, early fifties. So like, yeah, Whoa. I one hundred percent agree with you. Um, however, her three years as a teaching assistant at that university did allow her to gain an instructor's position at Long Island's Hofstra College. So when they moved, she was able okay. to do something. A year after moving, so 1955 is where we're at, she would go on to end that marriage. It became clear that her husband did not want a family and would not agree to that, even though that's what she wanted. So she left him. That sucks. Right? He, and here's the thing. Not wanting a family, totally valid. Uh, He sounds like a dick, though. Right. He does. So two years later, still... Ooh. <laughs> Still working at Hofstra College, um, she and still chasing that family that she really wanted because she wanted kids. Yeah. Um, she would go on to marry a psychologist who was also on the faculty at Hofstra. And surprisingly, they kind of had a weird role reversal because usually female were you know during this time females were really punished in academia. Like if you you know married another teacher, you'd usually get really punished. However, it kind of happened in reverse to them. 
she got offered a tenure track that was like a multiple year position and he didn't. So he wanted to leave and she had to turn it down. Oh, so they, yeah, they went on to move to Baltimore that same year and she was not able to find a job. So she turned down a 10 year position to be with her husband, which, you know, she wants a family. So I understand like this kind of sounds more like it was maybe a joint choice versus him being like, this is your ultimatum. Here's how it's going to go, sweetheart. Right. I don't know. She didn't really express that. Uh, I do want to note that a lot of my information comes from an autobiography written by her. So, but she didn't really like say one way or the other and neither did any of the other articles I found. But yeah, so they went on to move to Baltimore and she couldn't find a teaching job. So she was like, that's fine. I'm going to work on writing my thesis, you know, finish my schooling and have a baby. She was like, okay, that's fine. I'll start my family. Even with the aid of artificial insemination, however, she was not able to get pregnant or, you know, have a viable pregnancy, which is really unfortunate. I feel like she's not asking for a lot. She wants to pursue her education, get a teaching job, do her thing, have a family, things that are very normal today. And I feel like she just keeps getting like, I know people just just getting shit on and it makes me really sad. Uh, um, so I really wish that there was like a Venmo for fertility. Like right. I want to take someone's love infertility on to me because I don't I'm, want yeah. kids. And then I can give them if I'm fertile because I don't know. <laughs> I've never had those tests. But like, hey, you want to have a kid and you're barren? I will take your barrenness and you can have my fertility. And we'll just I was gonna Venmo suggest that to each other. I was going to be like, well, you could just become a surrogate, Emily. I don't want to be but pregnant. Exactly. I, I don't even want to be. I've thought about it because I've there's great money in it, but I don't want my I don't want my mentally I don't think I could it. do it like I I just because the problems I already have I'm like there is no way that I wouldn't get postpartum depression there oh, is yeah no way especially and then to have that and not have the baby I'm like I think that would just be even worse like if I'm yeah. gonna put my body through all of that I'm sorry I'm keeping the kid yeah <laughs> um anyways reasons we're not surrogates <laughs> exactly so unfortunately like I said she couldn't have a viable pregnancy so three years later she would eventually go on to accept very gratefully like she was like oh finally it was only a temporary assignment but she would accept an appointment as a assistant professor at at goucher college so she's back you know teaching which is great because she's like yay i'm fulfilling the dream my mom wanted me to fulfill you know like woohoo her dead dreams are now gaining new life in my hands right so three years after that her current husband, winner number two, actually three, because she said she was married before, but I never found any information on that. But she was the one that said that the last guy she divorced was marriage number two. And I oh, didn't mention okay. that. But I was like, I don't know what your other marriage was. So she's teaching and, you know, it kind of filled that hole of wanting a family, but not fully. And then three years later, her current husband um, accepted an appointment at Berkeley. Like they asked him to come Damn. teach there. And he wanted her to quit her job and go with him. She realized that she couldn't do it. She didn't want to. And again, it was he once again didn't really want to have a kid. He wasn't even necessarily willing to adopt. He also had a really bad alcohol problem. And so she, you know, when she was like, move, when he was like, move with me, she was kind of like, eh, you know, you're not once again. There's things that I want and you're not willing to compromise, basically. 
I so I wonder what those like dating was right. like because I know Jared and I have had the no kids conversation. I mean, back then, multiple times. Right. But well, back in this then, case, it could have been maybe they were like, "Yeah, I'm open to having a family," and then they're just like, "Yeah, fuck you." Like I I can't that that blows my right. mind that idea of so, like why would you lead someone on into exactly. marriage? <laughs> so basically, she was like, "You know what? I have this teaching job. It kind of fills that hole of wanting a family and not being able to, and now you want me to leave that." And I'm not willing to because you're not willing to compromise on any, anything I want. So I'm she not going to get go. what I want out of life with you. Right. So in 1973, he left to go to Berkeley. She stayed in Baltimore. They didn't divorce until a year later. But at that point, she was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with men. I'm done with marriage. I'm going to do me and fuck that. God, I feel like we've all had that moment. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, nope, fuck it. I'm just going to work on me. I'm just going to take care of myself and it's going to be great. <laughs> exactly. So during her time at Goucher, she would often eat in the dorms, because why not? And a group of her students one time asked her to drive them to a demonstration in front of a segregated movie theater. It was chiefly attended by black students, um, which she she would go on to teach them. But she so she dropped her students off and then kind of was like, oh, God, like I just dropped them off at a protest. Maybe that's not a great thing. I should go check on them. So she so she went and parked her car and walked over to see what they were doing. So when the students saw her, they got really excited being like, oh, she's coming to join us. This is great. And like started chanting her name and like getting really, really excited. And when she did join them, she kind of realized that she might have a problem with like other faculty. And she did. She ended up kind of being ostracized by the other faculty for, quote unquote, leading students to break the law. Oh, my God. Here's here's the thing, though. We learned in the Leesburg Stockade Girls story like, you need to check in on people because they went to protest in front of a movie mm-hmm. theater and they got fucking kidnapped by the cops exactly. and put in a cement box in the middle of fucking nowhere and no one and fucking no knew. one knew yeah, who that was so, terrible so you're saying there's um like a protest at a segregated yep. movie theater and i'm i'm and she, just thinking yeah, like i think it's so oh cute that God. the students were like Woo, our teachers joined like they right? got really excited so i yeah, would <laughs> even though she got kind of got ostracized by you know the faculty not all of them but like a chunk of them the president however was not necessarily on her side, but he was more sympathetic. And actually, he was like, okay, if you're sympathetic to their cause, you can bail out students. Like, they they gave her that job. Like, hey, our students keep getting arrested for protesting this stuff. Can you bail them out? Like, and I don't, it doesn't say, and she didn't say whether it was, like, her own money or, like, she was just in charge of, like, getting the students right. out of she, jail she using was the other money. <laughs> she was everyone's but one call. Exactly. Oh, my and God. I, what I think is cool is, like, the president of the college was like, hey, like, I go help them. Like, she, I actually don't know if it was a he or a she. I assume it was a he at this point in Probably. time. But, like, I think it was cool that... Like, he was, like, kind of watching out for his students. Yeah. He's like, hey, I'm not going to, like, I'm going to kind of act from the shadows as a nameless support so I don't get in trouble and get ousted from my position. But I am going to use my position to help kind of, you know, just support you guys. Like, give you some high fives. Exactly. So is she, like, the bailout bitch? She is. Oh, my God. I love it. (laughs) So that was... That was in the early 60s. And then come um, in the early months of 1964, she heard about this organizing of a thing called the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Yep. 
It's Remember thing. summer? Yeah, right. <laughs> it feels so long. Um, ago. Which was which was going to be a school for black people, basically. So she had heard about that, and then after a few months later, she heard um, in June that she learned about the murders of three young men who were attempting to register as black voters. Oh. She heard about that, which also happened to, in Mississippi. And she was like, okay, no, I need to go help. Like, I've been helping these students here in Baltimore, but I, I need to go and help a bigger cause, basically. So she went to Mississippi on a bus filled with people significantly younger than her because it was like all the students like going to protests and stuff. And she she went with, basically. And in Jackson, Mississippi, she was assigned to open a school in the basement of a church with six college students as her staff and teach people. About 100 people showed up on the first day, um, one of which was Alice Jackson, um, who was a 16-year-old who she would go on to adopt and bring back to Baltimore with her when she went home the following year. So she spent about a year in Mississippi you know, teaching black students, like, you know, making sure everyone has equal education. And then in 1965, um, she ended up going back home just because I think kind of things were getting better, maybe. Okay. Eh, quote. And she brought Alice, her now adopted daughter, back home with her. So that's cool. Oh, she has a family. Right. I love it. So she would go on to say, quote, the immersion experience in Mississippi changed my life significantly. Henceforth, I would work actively to expose racism and I would change my teaching methods. I learned to teach through through asking, quote unquote, open rather than closed questions in order to elicit responses from students who were learning to think about their lives in the social and political world around them. So basically she would... So basically, you know, when you're in a classroom and a teacher is like, what is this answer? It's a very closed ended question. Like, there's only one right answer. She didn't want to teach that way. She was like, OK, no, I want people to think about their answers. Right. And one question she became really obsessed with, basically, is why could young black teenagers write better poems than privileged white college students? That, wow. I don't know why that was like, but she like she realized this and she like she was like, why? And so that's why she wanted to change her teaching style. She's like, clearly there's a difference. And like, let's explore these differences. Let's figure out why things are different, you know. But yeah, what, what and what's interesting is this is what she wrote about changing her teaching style. Quote, this sounds simple and seems to have nothing to do with feminism. But friends, this is how ultimately I became a feminist love it that's amazing no she's she's yeah i was really wondering like because i've never heard of her and i had no frame of reference like we did not talk about this before we started recording so i'm just kind of like you're telling me the beginning she's got this level i'm like where is she going with this and all of a sudden she's like almost an accidental turn activist activist Um, like I'm skipping ahead just a little bit, but she eventually becomes described by colleagues as the Elizabeth Cady Stanton of women's studies. And oh! she she basically began teaching women's studies before women's studies was a thing. Oh, my God. And we just talked about her in our bonus Patreon episode that you should all subscribe Eliz- Elizabeth to. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yes. Not Florence Howe. No. Just. So, she, so she's back at teaching at Goucher in Mississippi, and she went on to ask her students. They were reading this book called Sons and Lovers which I've never heard of. It's by D.H. Lawrence. Um, but, you know, she asked them, I guess in, in the book, a woman becomes pregnant. And so she asked her students, like, what would happen if this woman told her parents she was pregnant? 
you know, like, what would they have said to her? And, like, no one responds. And, you know, she's like, okay, how can I get these students engaged? So she's like, what would your parents have said? Like, how how, how would your parents have responded to you being pregnant to versus your brother getting someone pregnant? Like, she's trying to get them to think about stuff like this. Right. Um, and she said that, like, people immediately started responding, you know, like, oh, my, my parents don't treat my brothers and me any differently. Like, you know... They treats them all the same. So she she would go on from there to ask more, like, as people answered, she'd go on to ask more detailed questions like, who mows the lawn? Who washes, washes the dishes? Like, what hours are you expected to be out? Like, all of this other stuff, like allowances, all of the, like, just a wide range of questions, basically. And, like, slowly, differences became visible on how parents treated the men versus the women. And the students kind of had a tough time with that. Like, you know, they they tried to come up with ideas like, oh, I don't want to mow the lawn anyway. So why does it matter that my parents let my brother do it? They're excusing inherently. Right. Sexist e- even behavior. though even though the boys would get paid money to mow lawns, but the women wouldn't get paid money to do dishes, you know, oh, like snap. so they're trying they're getting to get woke. Exactly. <laughs> She's waking people up. Right, exactly. And and one of the things a lot of the women would say would be like, well, I don't need an allowance because my dates pay for things. My my brothers have to take people on dates, so they need the money, basically. Yeah, but then why do your dates have to pay for things? Exactly. Why can't you go Dutch? She's like, I'm waking you bitches up and I don't have a snooze button. Right. <laughs> and this is when she really got into it. So because she, she realized as she was talking to them that she was like, okay, this is something that's a, a big deal, but they don't realize it. So she would go on to like assign this as a writing topic to this. So this is like the first time she's really getting into it as this class. So she assigned that as a writing topic and a lot of women weren't, you know, they were kind of like, oh, this is stupid. Like it doesn't matter, you know. And so she she started calling her course Identity and Expression. And this is really like this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that she began women's studies before women's studies was even a thing. Right. Only years later, in about 1969, when the women's movement was really big and started actually hitting U.S. campuses, did her course become super popular because, you know, people kind of realize like, oh, shit, like you've been doing this for a while. That same year. Uh, students started asking her why there were no women writers in eight, in the 18th century course that she taught. So she also taught other courses and they were like, well, why don't you talk about any women in your course? And she kind of went on to be like, well, I don't know of any like from that time. And so and she had only studied men and she was like, that's not right. Like, there's no way there wasn't any women writers. And then she started, and then she started a about, podcast. She started a podcast where she started learning about women from history that she had, that no one at all had heard right. of. Oh, my God. Exactly. So she would go on between that and just the other big feminist stuff going on in, in 1969 and in in, into the early 70s. It led her to found something called the Feminist Press, which is still around today. So like I said, she would go on to found the Feminist Press, which is absolutely amazing. And basically what they do is they publish women. It's very interesting. They, tra- they elevate female exactly. voices. They elevate female courses. So basically the Feminist Press is an educational, this is a quote specifically from them, an educational nonprofit organization founded to advance women's rights and amplify feminist perspectives. Love it. A few months after founding it, Tilly Olson, who um, they didn't really explain who she was. I think she was a friend, maybe a former like student, would send her a copy of a book called Life in the Iron Mills, which was a novella first published in 1861. So it's it's old. 
Um, and it was anonymous, anonymously published. However, Tilly, the person who sent this um, to Florence, knew that it was a woman and she wanted it. She wanted feminist press to basically republish it and like get her name out there. So Florence would go through and she read it and it was wonderful. I haven't read it, but apparently Florence like absolutely loved it. And she she didn't understand how this work had been lost for over a hundred years. It reminds me of that Virginia Woolf quote. I think exactly. you posted it on our Instagram. I mean, like when we first started this podcast, but for basically it's like for me- for much most of time anonymous has been a woman yep something like that that. yep so shoot they would go on to republish that and they like i said they they publish a lot of biographies of women feminist children's books they republished or reprinted quote unquote a lot of um important women writers in a series that continues to this day during in the feminist press like it's it's a thing that's ongoing which i think is absolutely amazing so while founding that, she would continue to teach her classes and the Modern Language Association actually would go on to appoint her the first chair of its newly founded Commission on the Status and Education of Woman Women in the Profession. So basically they, they formed like a, a thing to look at women in the profession of modern languages. They asked her to do a study of the status of 5,000 women in the English and modern language departments. And her report found that 80% of those studying English and modern, 80% of those studying English and the modern languages were women. Um, But only 20% of those were applying for doctoral programs. Oh. So this, this, it made it clear to her and I hope other people that women, um, even if they had high grades, were just, Choosing not to go to the doctoral programs, which left a lot of doctoral positions open for men that maybe didn't have as good of grades as women. Right, right. And so this kind of led, you know, Florence to ask, like, why? Why are these women that have such good grades not applying? And she found out through more studies that the short answer was that um, the male, the curriculum was still male based. And when it included women, it was all it sexual sexualized them or you know brought it brought them down dumbed it down like basically it showed women in a very poor light right you know and so women would learn all this stuff and they would be like well why would I want to go into higher education if this is what they're going to do to me basically you know what's interesting we see that kind of thing in stem fields today it's not just the idea of women being kept down like well i'm gonna hire this person because they're a man but it's also we don't cultivate that interest in girls at a young age we kind of and it like we don't even really know we're doing it because it's so deeply ingrained but it's kind of like it's there are a lot of different factors and one of those is we're not cultivating women who are interested in the sciences exactly you know it's yeah and and encouraging them so now in 1978, so a few years later, she wrote an, an essay titled Myths, Myths of Coeducation, which kind of talks about women's education and how it functions within a patriarchal society and how that patriarchal society really limits what women do. So that was a huge thing. And then she went on to edit something called the Women's Studies Quarterly, which is a peer-reviewed journal that is only articles by women. I don't know if it still exists, but that was a thing during this time while she was editing. So she's editing, teaching, running a press, 
She's doing all these things. And in 1977, the New New England College gave her a doctorate in humane letters. It was an honorary doctorate. Like, she didn't go to school for it, but they gave her one because they were like, clearly you deserve this. Right. Um, She would go on to be presented another honorary doctorate um, from Skidmore College uh, (gasps) three years later. That's my mom's alma mater. I think that's where she got her master's in library sciences. In 1979, they would also give her an honorary doctorate in humane letters. Oh, I got really excited. Yeah, that's that's nice. So not only was she teaching, but through the years, she would co-edit literature pieces. So not just like editing a press like she would actually be like working with people so some of the ones she wrote that are like bigger are with wings an anthology of literature by and about disabled women which came out in 1987 wow yep traditions and the talents of women which came out in 1999 and a book called no more mask which came out in 1993 so like she's helping write these books she would also go on to publish something called the feminist scholarship the extent of the revolution which is a very detailed journal article about another one about feminism in higher education which is awesome so she would then go on in 1983 to go on a lecture tour in india about feminism and women in higher learning she found or she didn't find she met someone named susie theroux who was a professor of english literature in hyderabad india i think that's right I think that's right. I think Hyderabad is correct. We're going to commit to it. <laughs> right or wrong, we're right. committing. So Susie was uh, an editor of something called the Women Women Writing in India 600 BC to the Present. So like there were like huge books of feminist literature from India and through their connection. So Susie did that in India and then Florence would go on through her feminist press and release it through that as well. Which that's is amazing. awesome. So what, what's interesting is that if you go through these volumes today, there is over 140 writers that have stuff in these volumes. Um, and a lot of these young Indian female authors um, know that they have a long history of other women writers behind them. So they're like, you know, yeah, you might not hear about us, but we know we're not alone, basically, right. which I think is great. Unfortunately, in the early 1990s, the Indian volumes were seized by the African scholars in the U.S., Not unfortunately. Sorry, let me start that over. In the 1990s, these Indian volumes were seized upon by African scholars of the time in the U.S. that wanted to produce similar volumes of their own. Okay, I... I know. The way I was like... (laughs) Wait, they're confiscating this stuff? No, they were like, no, we want to do this. We know there's, you know, like african-american women writers like we want to make our own history novels basically right it took them about 15 years but the feminist press would go on to complete um a a book called women writing africa in women writing africa they would produce it in four regional volumes which is nice so they had um a south one a west slash sahel one east and north so they, there's four volumes on women writing in Africa. All of them um, are available and will also be available in French. Oh, Which nice. is kind of cool. So she's helping do that. Uh, and then beginning in 1996, she would go on a tour of Africa. Great. So she was traveling around Africa, meeting different scholars, writers, translators, you know, this was during the 15 years that this book is being made. So she's like gathering all these resources and she was talking with people and, you know, giving lectures as this book is being produced, basically. So during this time, not only is she helping write that, but she's writing a memoir of her own um, about her life and her love of what she is doing. And this is what she says, quote, 
I closed the memoir in several ways, hearkening to the off-sighted wisdom that humans, whether female or male, need both love and work, and defining love as emanating from deep friendships. I describe my New York family of choice, all of whom have become acquainted with my non-biological families now scattered through the U.S. from California to Mississippi, Kansas, Illinois, Connecticut, and Washington, D.C., and I describe the providence of two personal Bellagio Awards from the Rockefeller Foundation that allowed me to write this memoir and six teams, six team awards to Women Writing Africa that allowed the completion of that project as well. She got her family. Right. She didn't have to marry an asshole to do it. Right. I mean, she did. Well, not really. Right. There were bumps on the road. So this memoir that, that, so that's like the ending of one of her memoir. And it took her about two years of intense writing to, and rewriting because she does say that she rewrote it multiple times. And it was almost a way for her to retire. Like her writing this memoir was like, okay, guys, I'm, I'm stepping down. Like she not only was she stepping down from the feminist, from managing the feminist press, but also just like, okay, the Women Writing Africa project is done. And that was that finished in 2009. So that, that's it's fairly recent. And her memoir came out in 2011. But basically, it was just like, okay, like, I'm older, I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of step down, step out of the spotlight, like, kind of like, my time is done, let other people come into the spotlight. And so that's, that's kind of what her memoir was, was kind of like a, her quote unquote retirement. Yeah, you k- know, kind of, this is the final word on everything I'm doing. Right. And she said in this autobiography that I was reading, which was more like a, a blog post about her life, it wasn't the memoir itself. Um, She said, quote, at least so far, I haven't found any way to recreate that experience in retirement, end quote. So she I think she misses it, which I would understand. Well, I mean, that was your life. Right. Exactly. I did read because she had a blog, which was very interesting, although it stopped. She stopped writing in 2018. It sounded like she had Parkinson's, which for a writer that has to be almost impossible like Parkinson's it's terrible. is the fucking worst man. and the saddest moment of my day I literally found out it was posted on Twitter hours ago literally like as I was finishing this up and just kind of making sure that I got everything it was posted on Twitter that Florence Howe died today like September 12 September 12 2020. 2020 and it like it doesn't say how she died and it just absolutely breaks my heart because I was like, man, I I was going to be so excited to be like, she's still alive and she's awesome. But she died today and I'm heartbroken. And I'll, I almost didn't tell her story today. And I was kind of t- talking to my husband about it and about how like how I felt and how I felt kind of almost odd sharing her story because she was actually 91. Sorry, I said 92 earlier. She That's was not 91. bad. Um, but he was like, you know, it, it makes it all the more poignant and important to tell her story because, yes, she died today, but people still need to know who she is. And in a way, it's it's honoring her memory. Like, yeah, she died today. And in a way, how cool is it that you're covering her today? Like, what fate that you are telling this amazing woman's story and whether she died today or not, like... It's almost what like kind of fate you, is that? If you don't tell her story today, that's even worse. She's gonna come back and haunt on my it. ass. It's like you are defying the gods, right? <laughs> so I am heartbroken because she sounds like an absolutely amazing woman, but she lived a long life and hell, she did a lot. Um, there is 
there's not really a legacy portion because she was still alive. But and she, most of what happened obviously happened during her life. So she like I wouldn't call that a legacy. I mean, it is a legacy, but it, it was within the story itself. It didn't need a separate right, section. Right. It there, wasn't after she died. Exactly. All, after she died, uh, a couple of best friends from Minnesota got together to talk exactly. about her on a podcast. I mean, like I said, the feminist press is still going strong. You can go find um, her memoir there, which I'm blanking on the name of it. So, like I said, the feminist press is still around going strong. They sell a lot of books. Um, of course, they sell her memoir, which I might actually end up buying. Right. Um, it's called A Life in Motion. And like I said, it was published in 2011 by the feminist press, of course. Um, and it sounds like it's a really good book. And I I mean, I want to read it anyways. And I actually want to go back and uh, read the book I mentioned earlier, like A Life in the Iron Range or whatever I said. Yeah. Because that sounds really interesting too. That that wings in motion one, I, I I know it sounded like that was a collection versus a oh yeah yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. of like disabled women writers uh, with wings, an with anthology wings. of literature by and about disabled women. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, that one. Sounds that one really sounds cool. really interesting too. Yeah. I I kind of just want to go through and read all of them, and I might. They need like a book club where I can just like rent a book and then return it and they can send me another one. Oh my God. I can we make that. the book version of Netflix? That would be awesome. We'll call it Book I would of the Month. I would love that. Like I, I'm part of a play thing called Book of the Month, but you don't get to send the book back. You just buy it and keep it. And I'm like, but I'm running out of bookshelf. Right. Like, can I just rent it and send it back? Like I, and I realize we're probably going to get a lot of ads about like, well, that's what a library's for. And I'm like, yes, I understand that, but they won't send me the book. Our library's also closed right now, you guys. Yeah. Be kind. Um, <laughs> so the one legacy thing, or the one thing I had in the legacy section is there is something called the Fr- Florence Howe Award, which is a feminist scholarship from the Women's Caucus for the Modern Languages, obviously named after Florence Howe. It is an annual scholarship given to two outstanding uh, women, women that write essays about feminism so they're specifically for feminist scholars one is in the field of english and one is in foreign language so they give out two uh the authors receive 250 dollars and are honored at an event hosted by the women's caucus you do have to be a member of the women's caucus to apply but i still thought that was pretty cool yeah so yeah like i said she died today so everyone take a moment of silence and just think about her and how amazing she was Cheers, Florence. And hopefully I did her justice. I, I That was an incredible story. Cheers, Cheers. Florence. No, th- I mean, that was kind of a wild ride. And she, she has this love of learning. She has this passion. She's clearly highly intelligent. Right. And then she kind of like stumbles into the realm of activism and it, and it, well, it was just like eyes? i need to i need to go make sure my students are okay and then it just kind of like she's like man maybe yep. maybe driving them to a protest like, like as a faculty member could sure have been a risky okay. move <laughs> right and i love that even though like other faculty members were like uh you're helping them break the law she was just she actually kind of got more into it versus like backing off and then right. the president of the university was like well since you're in it go help them like i don't Thank know you and for I, I feel like i was all over the place but that's kind of how the story was and i i'm trying to put my stories more in a chronological order versus like being like oh here's what she did for work I'm trying not to be Wikipedia where they're like, here's what she did for work. And now let's backtrack. And here's what she did in her personal right. life. I'm trying to integrate everything. And that's why I that's why I used her autobiography a lot, because I'm like, OK, this is actually in how the order of how things happened. 
So I, I hope I did her justice. I think because you she did. sounds like an absolutely amazing woman. I still can't like I, I literally got here and you're like, so I found out 47 minutes ago yeah, that the woman I'm covering again. died. Like, oh my God. <laughs> like it was posted on Twitter 47 minutes ago. What the fuck? <laughs> right. I know because I was telling Emily like I had already finished my notes, but I was just kind of like making sure I didn't miss anything. And I was on the feminist press press's website. And I yeah, they had like a article saying like our founder, you know, Florence Howe died. And I was like, oh, man, when did that happen? Like, I didn't see that on the Wikipedia or anything. And so I was like reading the article and it said 2020. And I'm like, oh, man, she died this year. Like, that sucks. And so I was trying to figure out like when she died this year. And then I saw like their Twitter post. and I was like, oh, my God. She died today. What the fuck? I know. I was uh, like, this This is a little too much. I have some chills. Like, I know. And I, I, she's here with us. So hopefully I did her justice. We love you, Florence. All right. Well, today I am covering, I'm going to whine about two women because, you know, I love a good group project and this was kind of an accident. I'll get into it. But I am whining about Angela Buxton and Althea Gibson. Can I, I want to add one more thing about Florence. Yes. I just want to say because the feminist press obviously like did something about her. It's been three hours now, but they, fi- they <laughs> it's finished been three hours. You they guys finished their tweet with rest in power, Florence. Oh, and I love that. Sorry. I because I I just noticed it and I'm like that's that I really you just that. want me a wine cry through my story I do. I do thank you for that I love you well as I said I am whining about Angela Buxton and Althea Gibson the Outcast duo and I Ooh. actually quick note about Althea I like my dyslexic brain read her name wrong three times uh, I thought her name was Athleta at first then I thought it was Athlea like. Like without an extra T, Athlea, but it's Althea, A L T H E A. So if I say it wrong, that's because I don't know what's going on right okay. now. Sounds good. Special thanks to my mom. Hey, Gwen. Hi, Gwen. Who suggested Angela Buxton, who then led me to Althea Gibson. So I, I was like, I'm going to cover Angela Buxton. She sounds cool. Oh, she, her story is like pretty integrated with this other also incredible woman. I don't think I cannot cover them together. So I thought it was going to be like maybe three pages turned into seven. So let's let's dive on in. Angela Buxton was born on August 16th, 1934 in Liverpool, England, just a few years before the Beatles. So they Ooh. definitely all hung out at some point. Her oh, yeah. head canon. Her parents, Harry and Violet, were both Jewish. As Judaism is passed through the mother, Angela was also Jewish. Their parents, so the parents' parents, Angela's grandparents, had lived in Russia but had to flee the pogroms of the early 1900s, which I learned what that means, that's an organized ethnic cleansing. Horrifying. But the family was seeing better days now. Harry owned a successful chain of movie theaters across northwestern England. Uh, I also learned, I, I read somewhere else that he had like won a bunch of money gambling and that's what he used to buy his movie theater. So he's like doing yeah. real well. Awesome, Harry. So this afforded Angela the opportunity to attend the very prestigious sounding boarding school Glaudeth Hall. G-L-O-D-D-A-E-T-H. I don't know if that's like old English spelling for death. Glaudeth? I don't know. But it sounds fancy. One of the activities. Like it makes me want to like, yeah, like Glaudeth. I know. I want that on a sweatshirt. I I I need to raise my pinky when I'm drinking my wine now. Yes. One of the activities available at the school was 
tennis. While playing tennis, the school's coach noticed that Angela was a natural and encouraged her to get professional training. And she did. However, it wasn't a walk in the park. Beyond the grueling training it takes to become an expert in the sport, Angela faced anti-Semitism and was banned from training at different facilities. We're like three paragraphs in and we're already getting real shitty. At first when I started reading Florence's, that's what I thought. Like a, a good I chunk was of hers was going to be because I was thinking of Angela. Yep. Like, and then oh it never, no, it never like materialized that way. And I yeah. was like, okay, she has enough on her plate. That's awesome. Her first experience uh, with anti-Semitism was while trying to get into the Cumberland Club, the Cumberbun Club, the, Cumber the Cumberbun Sandwich. Club. I like that. <laughs> Cum- Cumberbatch, Benedict Cumberbatch, the Benedict Cumberbatch Club. Association yeah, there you Club. Go. No, I the third. I'm not going to lump him in with an anti-Semitic tennis club. No, that's that's true. So, quote: This is a quote from Angela. I had to fill in a form, name, address, telephone number, and the and then religion, which I'm already like, what? For a tennis club. What? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's gross. I had several lessons there with a guy called Bill Blake, and I kept asking him about membership. Eventually, he turned around to me and said, look, Angela, please don't keep asking me. You're not going to be able to join the club. I said, why not? I'm not good enough? No. Because you're Jewish. And that was the the beginning. It was the first time it, prejudice, had hit me in this country. Jesus. Like, not even, like, sketchy, underhanded. Right? Like, well, you're he, Jewish. And even he doesn't, like, seem like necessarily maybe he's necessarily But he's like, it's not going to he's just like, I know how this club why. works. Yeah. Well, and I think he was kind of like, don't make me say it. Don't. Yeah. Make, and she's he, like, no, fucking say it. Yeah, like, oh, I'm uncomfortable because I have to tell you that you being Jewish excludes you from this club. Yeah. Like, fuck you. Fuck everything. Thankfully, a local Jewish department store owner let Angela practice on his private court. That's awesome. Angela trained in London, and then her mother took her to Los Angeles in 1952 so she could train year-round. Wow. Even there, though, anti-Semitism abounded. Money doesn't grow on trees, but apparently racism and anti-Semitism does. Angela lived right by this like hoity-toity Los Angeles tennis club, but was never allowed to play there because she was Jewish. Instead, she had to commute to train at public courts. Her family was crazy supportive. Like, I can't imagine my mom being like, we're going to move to a different country so you can swim. Right. Like, no. (laughs) It must have helped, though, that Angela was really, really good. By 1954, Angela earned the British number four ranking for women's tennis. That's awesome. Rankings are determined by the number of points they earn over uh, 52 weeks in multiple tournaments. So basically... The season, basically. Yeah. You compete in tournaments all over the place. And the better you do in the tournaments, the more points you accumulate. And they just kind of like average out everyone. So if you like suck at a tournament, it's not the end of your year. So if anyone watches like racing, that's how they do racing. Yeah. Like, just, like, to put it in context. See, and I know nothing about tennis. This is totally not my yeah, bailiwick. Yeah, I didn't know either. So. Like, I've played tennis, but I didn't know how that worked. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Also, little dedication to my friend Jory because she played tennis, uh, like, all throughout high school. I was thinking of her. I'm like, aw, Jory would appreciate this and tell me how tennis works. <laughs> right. 
You should have just called her and been like, explain tennis. Right. Luckily, I didn't actually have to learn how tennis oh, works to good, tell good, this good. story. I remember doing tennis. I did tennis when I was a kid you for knew a while. You knew enough about tennis. And then we had a tennis unit in high school, and they tried to explain to us the scoring. And I was like, what's this love shit? Can't we just say one to one or one to two or one to four? Like, why do you have to make it complicated? It's I mean, so unnecessary. The, the scoring in that is very is I think if not the same, very similar to volleyball. Oh, and, is it? And I played volleyball, so okay, yeah, because I remember them saying "love" in volleyball. I I see. I didn't know that either. I know nothing about sports. I actually kind of miss volleyball. My mom like showed me my old knee pads from volleyball the other day, and I'm like, man, I miss playing volleyball. Uh, volleyball is fun. Like I like playing it on the beach. I've never played beach volleyball. Oh, I only yeah. played court volleyball. See, court volleyball scares the hell out of me because those gym floors are very That's why you wear knee pads. Yeah, but you don't wear knee pads over your whole body. No, but you slide on your knees. It's like one of the things you learn in volleyball. <sighs> volleyball stresses me out. I prefer swimming. I'm in water. What could go wrong? <laughs> no one's going to hit me. I mean, someone could hit you. Nothing. No balls drown. are going to fly at my face. Well, I'm swimming. I'm not going to drown. <laughs> I'm saying if someone hits you, you could drown then because you're in water. Anyways. But no one's going to hit me because it's swimming. Anyway. (laughs) We're going to keep fighting about which sport is less deadly, I guess. All sports are deadly. (sighs) This is true. All sports can be deadly. We'll go with that. Man, those poor birdie players. I'm like whipping my wrist like an idiot. Badminton? Badminton. That's it. I'm like, what sport is really unassuming? Badminton. And I'm just like, they're called birdies. I don't know. They're actually (laughs) called shuttlecocks, but you know, we won't go there. Let's talk about how dirty that sounds. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know that sport was made by a man? Shuttlecock? Really? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Okay, back to my story. So... Angela's killing it. And then she meets Althea Gibson. Althea was born in Silver, South Carolina on August 25th, 1927. So she was just a few years older than Angela and halfway across the world. Althea's parents, Daniel and Annie, worked as sharecroppers on a cotton farm. Hmm, we like, talked we've, about that before. like we've mentioned before, it's literally in my notes. Sharecropping is when you basically rent farmland from the landowner to use for farming, and then the landowner gets a cut of your profits. After the American Civil War, the South had lost swaths of free labor. So this was a way for plantation owners to kind of like pivot their business yeah, model. It so it bad. wasn't it was centered around so desecrations of humanity. I mean, it still kind of was. They screwed. Like, that was basically their way of keeping slaves, but being like, well, we're paying them. Right. Kind of. So mostly newly free slaves work at worked as sharecroppers to try to establish autonomy for themselves. They're like, finally, like, we can work and earn money and make lives for ourselves this is great unfortunately it often led to sharecroppers owing the landowners more than they made because they were also being charged to use tools and supplies because they didn't have any of their own because you know they were considered property like 10 minutes ago yeah it was real bad anyway Althea's parents were getting by until the great depression hit and the country's economy tanked another great depression moment Super duper. Yeah, right. That's our tie into each other this week. Yes. Judaism and the Great, Great Depression. Depression. <laughs> 
To try and find more opportunity, the family moved to Harlem. They lived on a stretch of street that was a police athlete in like a police athletic league area. Now, this is a kind like I, I thought this was is, kind of okay. a cool idea. I do explain it because I didn't know what it was either. So basically, the cops in this area coached the neighborhood kids in sports and helped them with school Aww. because it not I'm only it's supports. a good thing because for a second when you right. say like police athletic area, I'm like, this is either going to be real bad or real good. Yeah. So it's on the real good scale. I'm glad. It is. So it's basically the cops are getting to know the community yeah, like that they're working part, within but also like elevating with the kids and vulnerable yeah, okay. children good, good, so good. there's there's programs like that today that i can't think of what they're called but like right. specifically that are like cop run it's 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 like a, a community initiative it's like a boys and girls club but run by cops yeah i was gonna say boys and girls clubs uh, are run not by boys cops. and girls uh no but yeah that, that's similar but run by cops or like yeah. big brothers and sisters but again run by cops yeah so during the day, the street was barricaded from traffic so the kids could play sports uh, ball. All the sports balls. All the sports balls. All the sports that maybe didn't have balls. Whatever sports. Shuttlecock sports. General sports. This is shuttlecock sports. God damn <laughs> There's it. There's only one. Uh, so this is when Althea was introduced to paddle tennis, which is like a smaller scale version of tennis using paddles so instead of rackets. it's ping pong. But there's no ping pong table. There's still a net. Okay. There's so it's like the layout. So of it's tennis, like ping you, pong, it's tennis, and, and badminton combined into a sport. I would equate it to badminton, but with, but a, with a paddle. Yeah, that's why I'm saying. Like so it's, it's like ball. it's like badminton and ping pong made into a sport. Yeah, paddle tennis. So badminton used its shuttlecock to impregnate the paddle ball yeah exactly and they had a baby and, and it was called, called paddle, paddle tennis oh that's yeah, so we cute figured it out guys so althea was good so good that at 12 years old she became new york city's women's paddle tennis champ wow so apparently paddle tennis was a pretty big deal yeah well Love i mean it. if you think about like how big ping pong was like right I always think of like when I think of sports like that, I think of, you know, like Forrest Gump and literally how like huge of a sport ping pong was. It doesn't surprise me that paddle tennis would also be a fairly large sport. Well, when you think about it, she's living in a city and there's a, so tennis in of itself is a pretty elitist sport. Exactly. It's um, for rich white people. Right, no offense. Exactly. I mean, it's actually not for rich white people. But when you think of that's tennis, kinda how it's been structured. Is, well, and that's and when we you get think into of that. when you think of tennis. That's what you think of. Because I like I think of Wimbledon and stuff like that. Like, I'm sorry. That's like the epitome of rich white sports. No, and actually the elitism of tennis and the racism kind of inherent oh, I, in the I, sport I and the anti-Semitism, it. it plays really heavily in the story if you couldn't tell. So I'm sorry if you play tennis. I'm not saying you are all like that, but I'm just saying that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. And I also imagine she's living in a city and there's not a ton, like tons of space for no. tennis courts so of course those are going to be expensive because they're occupying valuable real estate right where so paddle tennis smaller, being more condensed yeah. i'm sure is more a bigger deal and more readily available right. plus you can't hit the ball probably as far when yeah you're, when it's a you know so unfortunately althea's home life wasn't great her father was mm. a violent man and at 13 althea dropped out of school and lived in a shelter for abused children 
She spent her days playing basketball, watching movies, and engaging in what she called street fighting because she had actually learned some boxing moves from her dad, oh, who I'm just like imagining was using them on her to like, it just sounds like right. a really bad She probably situation. learned them basically to defend herself. Yeah. But her skills at paddle tennis weren't forgotten. Some of Althea's neighbors raised money to pay for a membership Mm. in tennis lessons at the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club. So again, like people from the community are coming together and being like, we're going to lift you up. Especially since, yeah, she goes to a shelter and stuff. And I'm sure they're like, oh, God, she's in a bad place. Like, let's get her out of that bad place. Now, Althea liked paddle tennis, but thought that regular tennis was for the weak. <laughs> like, Althea just strikes me as this kind of like... See, I would assume it would I be like the opposite if the court's significantly larger and stuff like that. You know, you'd think it would take more strength to like... Yeah. I'm, I realize people... See, this is what the, the V in our A is going to be. You'll <laughs> see me making these hand motions, but I'm, you know, swatting a tennis she's, ball. She's... Yeah. She's doing the broad arm. So uh, Althea said... I really said, want to play tennis. Thanks, by the way. You're welcome. Althea said, I kept wanting to fight the other players every time I started to lose a match. <laughs> she's like, she's tough and it's out of necessity. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, she's it's living a rough life. Up, yeah. But Althea did join the tennis club and channeled her energies into kicking ass through tennis. Not literally. Well, you don't know what happened off the court. Yeah, I mean, so, some some tennis players got some pretty bruised asses. <laughs> I regret saying that. Anyway, no, you you're right, I don't. <laughs> the following year, in 1941, Althea entered and won the American Tennis Association New York State Championship. Nice. Put that on a shirt. It won't fit. Then she went on to win the American Tennis Association's National Championship in the girls' division and kept racking up national titles through 1947. Well, quote, I knew that I was an unusual, talented girl through the grace of God. I didn't need to prove that to myself. I only wanted to prove it to my opponents. Uh, Love it. Uh, yeah. Althea's kickassery caught the attention of Dr. Walter Johnson, who was active in the black tennis community. He gained Althea access to more sophisticated training and more sophisticated nice. and more prestigious tournaments. She even enrolled in a school in North Carolina uh, with the help of other doctor sponsors. So, like, pe- like influential people from the community are like, are taking note. This yeah. girl has it going on we need to help her get the rest of the way because if the only thing that's holding her back is her financial situation like what the fuck sorry your dad sucks we're gonna help you out here she went on to attend florida a and m university on a full athletic scholarship it literally just said a and m and i was like i don't oh no i'm thinking of texas a and m i think you are I think it's um, agriculture, arts and math, agriculture and math, athletics and uh, Yeah, agriculture and mechanical. Oh, okay. But I'm thinking of Florida A&M because they're big in uh, football, even though I don't watch football. Unfortunately, in the 1940s, racism was alive and well. Even though Althea was a premier athlete, she was blocked from attending the United States National Championships, which is now known as the U.S. Open. And even if you don't know tennis, you've heard of the U.S. Open. 
This was not because the tournament specifically barred black people, but because of how the system was set up. Like I mentioned with Angela, tennis ranks are earned by entering tournaments and accumulating points. However, most of the clubs that held these like sanctioned tournaments were whites only. This meant that Althea couldn't accumulate enough points to even enter something like the U.S. Open. So the the U.S. Open could be like, hey, we don't discriminate against race, but every avenue to get there does. However, thanks to lobbying and pushback from another famous female tennis player, Althea was invited to the Nationals, making her the first black person to compete in the tournament. Not just the first black woman, first black Black person person ever. Yeah. This received international coverage, and Althea was compared to a to baseball legend and color barrier destroyer Jackie Robinson, who was notable for bra- for helping break the color barrier in baseball. Althea began to play internationally, and in 1955, when a at a tournament in New Delhi, India, she met Angela Buxton, who was Ooh. playing at the same tournament. Though Althea was kicking ass, she was getting really fed up with the racism that was prevalent in the world and the elite sport of tennis. Angela later described, When I came on the scene, the other players wouldn't speak to Althea much, less play with her, quite simply because she was black. She was completely isolated. I was too because of being Jewish, so it was a good thing we found each other. Angela's coach C.M. Jimmy Jones was impressed with Althea's incredible skills and thought she and Angela would make a fearsome pair, especially after she won 16 of the 18 tournaments she entered in while traveling across Europe and Asia. So, like, no one will play with Angela, so she can't do doubles. She's doing all singles, which is just 1v1 versus 2v2. But Angela being an outcast herself for her Jewishness being Jewish. Right. She you know, the coach is like, oh my God, no, no one wants exactly. this amazing player because she's black. Come on board. We're gonna wreck some shit. It's gonna be amazing. Right. Like I'm gonna have two of you and we're just gonna show them that uh, it doesn't matter where you come from or what color your skin is, we will still kick your ass. Right. Cause like I said, up until this point, Angela and Althea have been playing singles but the coach knew that they would kill in doubles. Oh, yeah. And that Angela would kill in doubles if she found the right partner. Enter Althea. Then the two young women, who had been ostracized because of who they were, found each other and had become friends. Now they would be partners in crime. No. (laughs) Secretly a Boston marriage. It's fine. It's it's not, but... We can pretend it is. I kind of wish it was. Like, how cute would that be? Uh, I want to write that book. Fan fiction. The herstory fan fiction. So the two entered the French championships as doubles partners. Althea became the first African-American woman to win the singles event at the same same tournament. Because you can do both. Yes. Angela and Althea won the doubles title at the French championships. But they were not done. No, of course not. Serving it up. What? What? Tennis tennis puns. puns. Next, the two joined forces to take on 
Wimbledon. I was going to say, if you don't bring up Wimbledon, at it's least at some It's the only point. tennis thing I know. <laughs> now, I don't know anything about tennis. God, I know myself so well. I literally put that in the notes. But I know that Wimbledon is a big deal. This is like the creme de la creme of tennis competition. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, oh, God, no, I can't think of it. Uh, I was, I was going to name, it's like the Kentucky Derby of tennis. Yeah. I don't watch horse racing either. But you know the Kentucky exactly. Derby. You don't have to watch tennis to I know, know and about technically Wimbledon. I know there's like three of them. Like in order to actually win like the full crown, you have yeah. to win like all three and like or two of the three. I don't actually know. See, but I, I know there's know like that. a triad of horse races. You're already out of my depth. <laughs> this is uh, sidetracks of sports we don't know a lot about. We should start a podcast. Two women who know nothing about sports Talk talking sports about ball. sports. We'll call it sports ball. Yeah, there you go. Or or we'll call it the Dirty Shuttlecock. Yeah, <laughs> I like that one. Okay, so they competed and advanced through the tournament. Apparently, there's something called the Wimbledon Ball, which what? is held the night before finals day. So it's like if you make it to the finals, they have a ball that all the competitors huh. who are going to okay. the finals attend. It's like, hey, you made it this far. This is cool. Let's party. Angela was going to attend with her mother, but when they went to get tickets, they were told the tickets were sold out, which is weird because you think they would account for the number of, of people them? going to the finals, which is a number that you should know before the event. What? Anyway, Angela's mother went into full mama bear mode. She knew it was anti-Semitism. She told them that she wouldn't allow Angela to play in the finals the next day, which would have basically fucked the entire rest of the, the tournament. Then they stormed out. So this is like when you're when you're trying to buy a car and you're like, oh, I don't know, I think I'm going to pass. And you walk out and you're hoping they'll be like, wait. The ticket manager realized that they couldn't be responsible for single-handedly fucking up the final day of Wimbledon. So they said, OMG, JK, I just happened to find two tickets here. Crazy. Right? All, they were they they were just under these other papers. I'm so sorry. I, I swear I looked in the ticket drawer like eight times. And the third time, like it was they were just there. It's crazy. It was magic. Magic. Tennis magic. He waved his magic racket and made two tickets appear right. out of his ass. <laughs> I don't want those. <laughs> Angela and Althea, and and I couldn't even find if Althea had the same problems trying right. to attend this ball. Well, maybe, maybe Angela was just like, I got it. I'll get the tickets. Yeah. So Angela and Althea entered the finals as doubles partners. The competition was tough, but the dynamic duo won the doubles title at freaking Wimbledon. Fuck yeah. What? There's a photo of the two of them playing, and it's like this beautiful action shot where Althea looks like she's casually dodging a laser because she's full up in the air, but her arms are down. She's just kind of like... <laughs> like, that's great and then angela looks like she's doing a victory can can because she is also full up in the air with one leg kicked out and she's got like her tennis racket like in mid motion but it's insane so like this was them in action they were both like prime athletes despite this historic and mind-blowing win not much changed an English news newspaper wrote of the story of the win with the headline, quote, minorities win. But as Angela commented, quote, 
It was in very small type, lest anyone should see it. And you know she's got the best British accent, so that came off, like, really snarky. Right. Like, just venom dripping from her lips. Angela later tried to join the All England Club, thinking that they'd be thrilled to have a Wimbledon champ, but one of the country and one of the country's best players as a member. You'd think. Althea also applied to the club. Neither of their applications were accepted. Angela cited anti-Semitism and racism, right? She would try to apply for the following 63 years. Never being accepted. So Angela kept like they she kept applying and for 63 years they told her to fuck off. In 2004, Angela said, quote, I think the anti-Semitism is still there. The mere fact I'm not a member is a full sentence that speaks for itself. Right. I wish it still wasn't such an elite sport. I wish we could bring it down to a common baseline. It's going that way. It's still not there. Yeah, that's sad that that's they still weren't accepting her in 2004. Right. After their amazing win at Wimbledon, Althea continued competing in tournaments. Instead of having players shun her, Althea's success with Angela at Wimbledon made her a more desirable doubles partner. So it was kind of like, okay. Suddenly everyone wants to like, be her partner. Racism is one thing, but I also want to win. Right. So, yeah question mark the year 1957 was a good one for Althea she called it Althea Gibson's year and that is now what the year 1957 is for everyone what year was that oh it was Althea Althea Gibson's Gibson's year year. when were you born Althea Gibson's year you scroll down on an online application to click your year of birth it says 1956 Althea Gibson's year 1958 she went back to Wimbledon yep. where she won the doubles title again and now the singles title, becoming the first black champion in the event's 80-year history. Heck yeah. In, a, in another historical first, Althea received the champion trophy from Queen Elizabeth II herself. Yeah. Corgis in tow, pastel outfits, all ablaze. It was amazing. It I don't know if she was dressing I, like that I, at the time. but pretty sure she was. I'm she definitely sure had corgis. Yeah. Quote, shaking hands with the Queen of England was a long way from being forced to sit in the colored section of the bus, she said. There was a winner's ball held and Angela made the floral dress that Althea wore to it. So, like, I, I just want to say I kind of tell their story separately because I couldn't find a ton of accounts but of it sounds like them they, spending they time together. Friends. But they were like BFFs through it all. News of Althea's success gained international attention, and upon returning to the United States, she was greeted with a ticker tape parade in New York City and was presented with the Bronze Medallion, which is the city's highest civilian award. I don't have a picture of it, but I assume it was bronze and medallion shaped. (laughs) I love you. A month later, she won her first U.S. National Championship. Althea recalled, quote, winning Wimbledon was wonderful and it means a lot to me, but there is nothing quite like winning the championship in your own country. Like, that's your home. Right. That year, Althea also became the first black player to win the U.S. Whitman Cup. I don't care if I'm saying that wrong. Um, Oh, no, she was on the U.S. Whitman Cup team. So it's an international team competition. The U.S. beat Britain six to one. So... 
Angela's career, however, didn't blossom the way Althea's was. She suffered from a chronic wrist condition which ended her career in 1957 at only 22 years old. I'm sorry, ended her career in Althea Gibson's year at only 22 years old. But like, how sad is that? She's just got this. I, I couldn't find if it was an injury from tennis or if it was just something like inherent to her. Or it but might have just been she was sick of all this bullshit. Maybe. But she did. She, I think she would have kept playing because she did remain involved in tennis throughout her yeah, life. So it must but have she just, just couldn't play something. professionally yeah. anymore. Like only 22 years old. She would have gone on to have a really impressive career. Yeah, because tennis is one of those sports that. It's not all about age. Like you see, like in a lot of sports, it's like basically once you're like 25, you're just SOL. Yeah. But tennis really isn't one of those. You see like, yes, there are a lot of younger players, but you do see people of all ages competing. Yeah. I mean, God, how old is uh, Serena Williams yeah, now? Oh. She's in her 40s. I was going to say 50s, but I don't want to be offensive. So I'm going to Google it. <laughs> you always guess lower. <laughs> Isn't there two of them? There's Serena and Venus Williams. I don't know if Venus still plays, though. So Venus is 40. Okay. Um, Serena is... 38. Shit, I guessed too high. I Because here's the thing. I've heard about them since I was a kid. So I always imagine like, well, I'm almost 30. They've got to be because they were grownups when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm at least according to Wikipedia, they're still she both of them are still playing. OK. So despite this, Angela and Althea remained close friends over the years. Althea called Angela Angie Baby. See? Boston marriage. Oh, I love it. And there is a photo of the two dining out in Paris, laughing and having the best time. And it was quite a sight for news readers to see a pair of interracial friends just having a good time like it was a totally normal thing to happen. How crazy is that that that's a novelty, though? Like, what international friend or international interracial friends? They are international, too. Both, but you know, it's like, oh God, that's normal. That could be normal. Yes. Right. Angela utilized her tennis knowledge and went on to mentor and coach younger tennis players. She also wrote several instructional books about tennis. Good. She married and had three children in 1967 during the Six Day War, which was um, uh, like an Arab-Israeli conflict, one of several. Angela volunteered to work on a several is an understatement well this was part of a very specific series i guess but yes so she volunteered to work on a kibitz which is like a communal farm in israel with her young children to show her support and they were all like under seven and i don't know if her husband was with her but she's like we're going to israel we're gonna help people out i'm gonna bring my children who are all under seven and we're gonna do this we're just gonna do this and it's funny because i always thought kibitz was like I, I've heard it as like let's kibitz. So I thought it was like, oh, let's sit down and talk and like, you know, kind of party or like get together. But since this is a communal farm, maybe it's kind of like that's an additional meaning to it. But I learned something new today. Along with all of you, beautiful listeners. So in the meantime, Althea went on to have a professional career, but there wasn't a lot of money in it. At the time, there were no cash prizes and endorsements were prohibited. There was no, you know, being the spokesperson for Subway or Nike or any of that. 
She said, the truth, to put it bluntly, is that my finances were in a heartbreaking shape. Being the queen of tennis is all well and good, but you can't eat a crown, nor can you send the Internal Revenue Service a throne clipped to their tax forms. She's yeah, so sassy. I like, that. I like her being sassy. The landlord and grocer and tax collector are funny that way. They like cold cash. I reign over an empty bank account and I'm going to fill it or and I'm not going to fill it by playing amateur tennis. To make ends meet, Althea began booking exhibition matches to open for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's cool. Yeah, that is. She also dabbled in entertainment. In addition to being a stellar athlete, Althea was a great singer and saxophonist. I don't know when she found the time. Like, passions, man. She's truly amazing. She's actually gotten to, she actually had gotten second at the Apollo Theater's amateur talent show. What? Althea made her professional debut at a birthday celebration for composer W.C. Handy's 84th birthday, where she sang the critical piece of Happy Birthday. You cannot fuck up Happy Birthday at a composer's party. No, that would be terrible. I'm not being sarcastic. You cannot fuck that up. And she didn't. And I said, I said, I would sing it, but that's a copywritten song, and those happy B-Day people have vicious lawyers. They do. That's they, why you, they don't sing you happy birthday at Applebee's. Anywhere. Any restaurant. Or they, anywhere. They come, they come up with their like own version, because otherwise you're going to get sued. Yeah. She went on to record an album and performed on the Ed Sullivan Show. She had that's TV cool. guest spots and was even in a movie called The Horse Soldiers. The bummer part is that she was cast as a slave, yep. but because I won't leave you feeling low for too long, she refused to speak in a broken, unintelligent way that was stereotypical of Good. black characters. She's like, fuck you. She's like, no, I'm going to speak like a human like, if, being. If you want me here, yeah, I, I will play the slave role, but I'm not going to act like I'm a fucking idiot. Exactly. that's just not true. She also worked as a sports commentator, so she's kind of doing a little bit of everything. Because why not? Yeah. While Althea tried to continue playing tennis professionally, racism reared its ugly sphincter face again. (sighs) Quote. That is quite the mental image. That, I mean, it's burned into all of our brains now. We all have to live with that. You're welcome. (laughs) Quote. When I looked around me, I saw that white tennis players, some of whom I had thrashed on the court, were picking up offers and invitations. Suddenly it dawned on me that my triumphs had not destroyed the racial barriers once and for all, as I had perhaps naively hoped. Or, if I did destroy them, they had been erected behind me again. She pursued a golf career and actually crushed it. She's just like a stellar human being. This is why I couldn't just do Angela. And I'm like, no, no, they're both amazing. She was the first black woman to join the loin. No, join Join the the loin. Join the loin. (laughs) That should be our new call to action for Patreon. Join Join the the loin, loin. listeners. I don't she, know what it has to do with whining, but, you know, it's that's our call to it's action. It's just our inherent sexuality. Yeah. So to join the Ladies Professional Golf Association, Jeez. LPGA, and she went around breaking course records and taking no prisoners until she officially retired in 1978. And because I'm covering two right, women, yeah. I'm definitely glossing over some stuff. She went on. To, she won tons of stuff. She was amazing. Just... 
blanket statement, she crushed it. In her post-athlete life, Althea worked with Pepsi to help bring nets and tennis equipment to underprivileged metro areas and worked on outreach programs centered around sports. She also coached future tennis stars Leslie Allen and Zena Garrison. And I included their names because if you're a tennis buff, they mean something to you. I I recognize one of the names. And one of them actually, like, I think wrote a memoir or something. And, like, she's like, I wouldn't be here if If it it wasn't for Althea. That's amazing. Things were not easy for Althea, though. She had two marriages that ended in divorce and no children. Uh, She also suffered two cerebral hemorrhages in the 1980s. Because why have one when you can have two? And then a stroke in 1992. Medical bills destroyed her finances, leaving her unable to pay for her home or future medical care. She reached out to different tennis organizations to see if anyone could help, but they rebuffed her. In 1995, Althea called her lifelong friend, Angela. Quote, she was calling to say goodbye, Angela later told. She said she was going to kill herself. I said, now wait just a minute, which I'm like... God, what what a re- like great response! Like your your longtime friend is like, I'm going to end my life now. Wait just a minute, there. Give me Hold a second. <laughs> Hold your horses. No, put a pin in that. Let's talk. <laughs> I will be there in you know right. however long it takes me to get there. Angela knew her friend was in desperate need. She wrote a letter to Tennis Week magazine describing what was happening to one of the greatest tennis players of their generation and asked for help from the tennis community. It was like an old school GoFundMe. Money began pouring in from all over the world. Not only did they help Althea stabilize herself financially, she received almost a million dollars. Holy shit. But I guess when Althea's asking for help, everyone's like, fuck you. So, like, even though Angela is definitely receiving anti-Semitic bullshit, she's still she's white. still white. And, like, maybe that gives her, but like... It, and it could have just been she, she has some white privilege. You know, she contacted a newspaper versus, you know, maybe Althea contacted, like, clubs direct. You know, like, it could also just be... It was probably racism, but it could have yeah. also just been who they contacted. But this uh, this outpouring of support also elevated her spirits. Like emotionally, she yeah, she's was still like, like wow, up. the community still cares. Yeah. In 2003, Althea survived a heart attack, but succumbed to the resulting infections oh. caused by the attack. She died on September 28th, 2003. So that's in like a couple weeks. Yep. It's our she break was day. 76 years old. Yeah, the one. We're not releasing an episode out of respect, (laughs) but we're covering her now. Yeah. She's buried in Rosedale Cemetery in Orange, New Jersey. Angela was still alive. She kept busy and founded the Angela Buxton Tennis Center, which is spelled C-E-N-T-R-E because she's British, and attended tournaments regularly. She made a public appearance in 2019 during the U.S. Open in New York to attend a ceremony that unveiled a statue of Althea outside the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And remember that name, Arthur Ashe, because he will pop up in a little bit. But, like, she's still there, like, supporting. She's, like, my friend and her legacy, and she was amazing, and she deserved better, you know? At the event, Angela said of Althea, quote, 
The main thing is not the statue. It's what I learned from her and what I enjoyed with her. That's the main thing. She later added that with or without the statue, quote, the memories would still be the same. Angela followed Althea on August 14th, 2020. So less than a month oh, ago at the age of 85. And so the New York Times posted something, yep. an article about her. And so I think that's how my mom found her. So we're both covering women who have died very recently. Very recently. Yours more than mine. <laughs> but so when you said that, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Legacy. So I split their legacies yeah. into different sections and I have like a final thing. So Angela, during her life, Angela was inducted into the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. In 2014, she was inducted into the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. In an interesting twist, Angela was also inducted into the Black Tennis Hall of Fame due to her joint victory with Althea and her uh, efforts to raise funds to help Aww, Althea later in life. That's nice. So, like, they acknowledge her as, like, an ally. That's nice. Uh, Althea's legacy. Uh, during Althea's life, she was one of the inaugural class of inductees into the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame, along with Gertrude Ederly, who yep. I covered in episode 21. She was also inducted into the National Lawn Tennis Hall of Fame, International Tennis Hall of Fame, Black Athletes Hall of Fame, and the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. <laughs> and you will learn why Seneca Falls is a big deal and He's why the National Hall of Fame is in there if you listen to our first bonus Patreon episode. Yes, in we're going to plug that for yeah, a while. Forever. In 1968, a decade after Althea won the U.S. Nationals, Arthur Ashe, remember from the stadium? Yeah, I do. Became the first black man to win the Grand Slam singles title. Aww. Super famous female tennis player Billie Jean King from the famous Battle of the Sexes, where she, where you know, she battled Steve Carell in the movie. It was like, was it Emma? Shit, she was in Super Bad. She was in La La Land. Oh, Emma Stone. Emma Stone. That's it. Emma Stone plays Billie Jean King, and Steve Carell plays the other guy. <laughs> so Billie Jean King said, quote, if it hadn't been for Althea, it wouldn't have been so easy for Arthur or the ones who followed. So like Althea paved the way for everyone else. Her five Wimbledon trophies are in the Smithsonian Natural Museum of American History. And I may have seen them because I went there when I was in like eighth grade with my family, but I definitely did not know who Althea was or, or the what they would have been. Yeah. She has a statue in New Newark, New Jersey. I almost said New York, New Jersey. That would have been confusing. <laughs> they purposely named it to be confusing. So uh, I'm going to end Althea's legacy section with a quote from her from when she retired from tennis in 1958. Quote, I hope that I have accomplished just one thing, that I have been a credit to tennis and my country. And then the inscription on her statue in Newark has a response. Althea Gibson certainly attained that goal. I'm not crying. You're crying. That's awesome. Together, the two women who were of different races, religions, and parts of the world found friendship and camaraderie in each other to break barriers and rule, each as one half of the outcast duo. <gasps> I'm not crying. I didn't cry during this research. Why did that get me? 
because I'm here and I'm oh, like tearing up. I'm feeding off of your sad energy. <laughs> but yeah, so that is uh, Angela Buxton and Althea Gibson. That was amazing. Yeah. They're they're amazing. That I I wish story. I could have found more about like their relationship, but it's you Sometimes know I want to like do e- because Angela's tennis career ended when she was so young. Otherwise, I think there would have been more about them teaming up in the future. Right. But yeah, but I'm, they well, remain lifelong just, friends. You know, I'm sure just because of who they were and the fact that there was so much hatred back then. That's probably why there isn't a lot about them, like their friendship, because. You know, well, and I wasn't very well looked upon. I think it's very telling that Althea, when she is planning to end her life, is calling Angela to say goodbye like that. That's a huge that struck me like a bolt of lightning. You don't just call whoever. Yeah. You know, I'm not whipping out my yearbook to call people (laughs) like, Like, hey, that's the close of the close. Remember how we had math class together that one time? Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm 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 having a really hard time. I want to say goodbye. Like and and the fact that uh, Angela's support and then her efforts to help Althea kind of like kept her mental state and her finances stable. Like that's huge. Like, and here's the thing, unstable finances can lead to suicide. Yeah, and, yeah, unstable finances can lead to unstable mental health. Yeah. Is what I was about to say. All right. Well, Kelly, what are you thankful for this week? That the week's over. (laughs) TGIS? Simple simple one. Uh, No, I, I, I really am thankful that the week's over. It's been really stressful, like, work week and stuff. And like Emily said, like, our recording Thursday was a big highlight. And then of course today too, like, but I'm, I'm glad that, and I'm glad this is going to sound real bad. I'm really thankful that I don't have anything to do this weekend. Like other than this podcast, which isn't stressful for me. Usually (laughs) today it's not, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm really thankful that I don't really have to like go anywhere and nothing's really expected of me. Like, yeah, I have some homework, but that's about it. And I'm really thankful for that because I just need to not function I totally get that I I have those weekends where it's like I don't have any plans and I'm keeping it that way because I need time to myself and to just not and it was that kind of week so I'm I'm very and I'm like my husband's really understanding and I'm grateful for that too Mm. and you of course I love you I love you too. What are you thankful for? Um, I'm thankful for two things. So over Labor Day weekend, uh, Jared and I went to my parents and we had like a socially distanced outside dinner uh, because it's been a really long time since we've actually like gotten like I've seen my parents. Uh, I've stopped by their house like to pick up something or drop something off. But but we haven't like hung out. And my dad actually found my grandfather. So my mother's father's old college yearbook. Because colleges used to have yearbooks when you only have like five people attending. (laughs) And he he had someone restore it. Really? Yeah. So I got to go through it and I got to read the notes from my grandfather's classmates. And they all had a nickname. Right? but they all had a nickname and I guess my grandfather's nickname was Trigger and I'm like what (laughs) that's the point you're like I have so many questions but it was really cool to see notes from his classmates who knew him at that time and like he had two classmates who were originally from Puerto Rico 
and they both wrote in his yearbook referencing Aww. like don't forget the trip or come visit me in Puerto Rico and I'm like man I would have never imagined my grandfather like taking a trip to Puerto Rico and I don't think the right. trip ever materialized but it's but so just, cool I don't know it was like a cool insight and I got really emotional because I don't have a I was very young when my grandfather uh, got Alzheimer's and passed and then passed away. So a lot of my memories of him are when he was sick. And I have this one uh, really poignant memory. So I was growing up with people kind of treating him like a child because he was deteriorating. And so I kind of picked up on that. And so he was playing with this balloon and I took it away from him. And I was like, don't play with that. You'll pop it. Like I was trying to be the grown up, even though I'm like preschool age. And he started crying. And I, I don't know if it's because of this, but I've always had this thing with men crying, especially old men crying. And I fucking like, I didn't know what I did wrong. Like, and that memory still sticks with me. So it was really cool to see him through a light of like healthiness and like, like this different side of him that I never got to know. And so that was really cool. That is my other thing I'm thankful for is I had a a trauma anniversary yesterday and it was one of those things like I kind of knew it was coming by wasn't acknowledging it. I was like no no no. you're fine you're always fine just whatever and I had really bad nightmares the night before and I got up and I was feeling emotionally and physically drained and it kind of hit me oh I like maybe I didn't give enough respect to what this like can do to me so Jared kind of took care of me for the day. He was very sweet and understanding. And so I'm also thankful for that. Aw. So, yeah. Jared's a good guy. He is. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Uh, please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram, WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com. We have a Patreon, which we've mentioned. You can just search for us. I think it's patreon.com slash whiningaboutherstory. Have we mentioned our Patreon? No. And how you can subscribe for as little as one dollar. <laughs> I'm so um, excited I can't speak. <laughs> and then we also have merch on Teespring if you just search for Whining About Herstory. There we go. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.